0: Welcome back to Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Jane Eyre. Without further ado, here is Marilyn Lightstone to continue the story. Chapter 8 Ere the half hour ended, five o'clock struck. School was dismissed, and all were gone into the refectory to tea. I now ventured to descend. It was deep dusk. I retired into a corner and sat down on the floor. The spell by which I had been so far supported began to dissolve. Reaction took place, and soon so overwhelming was the grief that seized me. I sank prostrate with my face to the ground. Now I wept. Helen Burns was not here. Nothing sustained me. Left to myself, I abandoned myself, and my tears watered the boards. I had meant to be so good, and to do so much at Lowood, to make so many friends, to earn respect and win affection. Already I had made visible progress. That very morning I had reached the head of my class. Miss Miller had praised me warmly, Miss Temple had smiled approbation. She had promised to teach me drawing and to let me learn French if I continue to make similar improvement two months longer. And then I was well received by my fellow pupils, treated as an equal by those of my own age and not molested by any. Now, here I lay again, crushed and trodden on, and could I ever rise more? Never, I thought, and ardently I wished to die. While sobbing out this wish, in broken accents, someone approached. I started up. Again, Helen Burns was near me. The fading fires just showed her coming up the long, vacant room. She brought me my coffee and bread. Come, eat something, she said, but I put both away from me feeling as if a drop or a crumb would have choked me in my present condition. Helen regarded me, probably with surprise. I could not now abate my agitation, though I tried hard. I continued to weep aloud. She sat down on the ground near me, embraced her knees with her arms, and rested her head upon them. In that attitude, she remained silent as an Indian, I was the first who spoke. Helen, why do you stay with the girl whom everybody believes to be a liar? Everybody, Jane? Why, there are only eighty people who have heard you called so, and the world contains hundreds of millions. But what have I to do with millions? The eighty I know despise me. Jane, you are mistaken. Probably not one in the school either despises or dislikes you. Many, I am sure, pity you much. How can they pity me after what Mr. Brocklehurst has said? Mr. Brocklehurst is not a god, nor is he even a great and admired man. He is a little liked here. He never took steps to make himself liked. Had he treated you as an especial favorite, you would have found enemies declared or covert all around you. As it is, the greater number would offer you sympathy if they dared. Teachers and pupils may look coldly on you for a day or two, but friendly feelings are concealed in their hearts, and if you persevere in doing well, these feelings will ere long appear so much the more evidently for their temporary suppression." "'Besides, Jane,' she paused. "'Will, Helen?' said I, putting my hand into hers. "'She chafed my fingers gently to warm them and then went on. "'If all the world hated you and believed you wicked, "'while your own conscience approved you and absolved you from guilt, "'you would not be without friends.' "'No, I know I should think well of myself, but that is not enough.' If others don't love me, I would rather die than live. I cannot bear to be solitary and hate it, Helen. Look here, to gain some real affection from you or or Miss Temple or any other whom I truly love. I would willingly submit to have the bone of my arm broken or or to let a bull toss me or to stand behind a kicking horse and, and let it dash its hoof at my chest. Hush, Jane! You think too much of the love of human beings. You are too impulsive, too vehement. The sovereign hand that created your frame and put life into it has provided you with other resources than your feeble self or than creatures as feeble as you. Besides this earth and besides the race of men, there is an invisible world and a kingdom of spirits. That world is round us, for it is everywhere, and those spirits watch us, for they are commissioned to guard us. And if we were dying in pain and shame, if scorn smote us on all sides, and hatred crushed us. Angels see our tortures, recognize our innocence, "'if innocent we be, as I know you are of this charge, "'which Mr. Brocklehurst has weakly and pompously repeated "'at second hand from Mrs. Reed. "'For I read a sincere nature in your ardent eyes "'and on your clear front, "'and God waits only the separation of spirit from flesh "'to crown us with a full reward. "'Why, then, should we ever sink, "'overwhelmed with distress?' when life is so soon over, and death is so certain an entrance to happiness, to glory? I was silent. Helen had calmed me, but in the tranquility she imparted, there was an alloy of inexpressible sadness. I felt the impression of woe as she spoke, but I could not tell whence it came and when, having done speaking, she breathed a little fast and coughed a short cough, I momentarily forgot my own sorrows to yield to a vague concern for her. Resting my head on Helen's shoulders, I put my arms around her waist. She drew me to her, and we reposed in silence. We had not sat long thus when another person came in, Some heavy clouds, swept from the sky by a rising wind, had left the moon bare, and her light, streaming in through a window near, shone full both on us and on the approaching figure, which we at once recognized as Miss Temple. I came on purpose to find you, Jane Eyre, said she. I want you in my room, and as Helen Burns is with you, she may come too. We went. "'Following the superintendent's guidance, "'we had to thread some intricate passages "'and mount a staircase before we reached her apartment. "'It contained a fire and and looked cheerful. "'Miss Temple told Helen Burns to be seated "'in a low armchair on one side of the hearth, "'and herself taking another, she called me to her side. "'Is it all over?' she asked, looking down at my face have you cried your grief away? I'm afraid I never shall do that. Why? Because I have been wrongly accused, and you, ma'am, and everybody else will now think me wicked. We shall think you what you prove yourself to be, my child. Continue to act as a good girl, and you will satisfy us. Shall I, Miss Temple? You will, said she, passing her arm round me. And now, tell me, who is the lady whom Mr. Brocklehurst called her benefactress? Mrs. Reed, my uncle's wife. My uncle is dead, and he left me to her care. Did she not then adopt you of her own accord? No, ma'am. She was sorry to have to do it. But my uncle, as I have often heard the servants say, got her to promise before he died that she would always keep me. Well now, Jane. You know, or at least I will tell you, that when a criminal is accused, he is always allowed to speak in his own defense. You have been charged with falsehood. Defend yourself to me as well as you can. Say whatever your memory suggests is true, but add nothing and exaggerate nothing. I resolved in the depth of my heart that I would be most moderate, most correct, And having reflected a few minutes in order to arrange coherently what I had to say, I told her all the story of my sad childhood. Exhausted by emotion, my language was more subdued than it generally was when it developed that sad theme. And mindful of Helen's warnings against the indulgence of resentment, I infused into the narrative far less of gall and wormwood than ordinary. Thus restrained, and simplified, it sounded more credible. I felt as I went on that Miss Temple fully believed me. In the course of the tale, I had mentioned Mr. Lloyd as having come to see me after the fit, for I never forgot the, well, to me, frightful episode of the Red Room, in detailing which my excitement was sure in some degree to break bounds, for nothing could soften in my recollection the spasm of agony which clutched my heart when Mrs. Reed spurned my wild supplication for pardon and locked me a second time in the dark and haunted chamber. I had finished. Miss Temple regarded me a few minutes in silence. Then she said, I know something of Mr. Lloyd. I shall write to him. If his reply agrees with your statement, you shall be publicly cleared from every imputation. To me, Jane, you are clear now. She kissed me, and still keeping me at her side, where I was well contented to stand, for I derived a child's pleasure from the contemplation of her, her face, her dress, her one or two ornaments, her her white forehead her clustered and shining curls and beaming dark eyes. She proceeded to address Helen Burns. How are you tonight, Helen? Have you coughed much today? Not quite so much, I think, ma'am. And the pain in your chest. It is a little better. Miss Temple got up, took her hand, and examined her pulse. Then she returned to her own seat. As she resumed it, I heard her sigh, low. She was pensive a few minutes. Then, rousing herself, she said cheerfully, "'But you two are my visitors tonight. I must treat you as such.' She rang her bell. Barbara, she said to the servant who answered it, "'I have not yet had tea. Bring the tray and place cups for these two young ladies.' And a tray was soon brought. Oh, how pretty to my eyes did the china cups and bright teapot look placed on the little round table near the fire! How fragrant was the steam of the beverage and and the scent of the toast! Oh, of which, however, I, to my dismay, for I was beginning to be hungry, discerned only a very small portion. Miss Temple discerned it, too. "'Barbara,' said she, "'can you not bring a little more bread and butter?' There is not enough for three. Barbara went out. She returned soon. Madam, Mrs. Harden says she has sent up the usual quality. Mrs. Harden, be it observed, was the housekeeper, a woman after Mr. Brocklehurst's own heart, made up of equal parts of wheelbone and iron. Oh, very well, returned Miss Temple. We must make it do, Barbara, I suppose. And as the girl withdrew, she added, smiling, Fortunately, I have it in my power to supply deficiencies for this once. Having invited Helen and me to approach the table and placed before each of us a cup of tea with one delicious but thin morsel of toast, she got up, unlocked a drawer, and taking from it a parcel wrapped in paper, "'disclosed presently to our eyes a good-sized seed-cake. "'I meant to give each of you some of this to take with you,' said she. "'But as there is so little toast, you must have it now.' "'And she proceeded to cut slices with a generous hand. "'We feasted that evening as on nectar and ambrosia,' and not the least delight of the entertainment, was the smile of gratification with which our hostess regarded us as we satisfied our famished appetites on the delicate fare she liberally supplied. Tea over, and the tray removed, she again summoned us to the fire. We sat, one on each side of her, and now a conversation followed between her and Helen, which it was indeed a privilege to be admitted to hear. Miss Temple had always something of serenity in her air, of state in her mien, of refined propriety in her language, which precluded deviation into the ardent, the excited, the eager, something which chastened the pleasure of those who looked on her and listened to her by a controlling sense of awe, and such was my feeling now. But as to Helen Burns, I was struck with wonder." the refreshing meal, the brilliant fire, the presence and kindness of her beloved instructress, or perhaps more than all these, something in her own unique mind had roused her powers within her. They woke, they kindled, first they glowed in the bright tint of her cheek, which till this hour I had never seen but pale and bloodless. Then they shone in the liquid luster of her eyes, which had suddenly acquired a beauty more singular than that of Miss Temple's, a beauty neither of fine color, nor long eyelash, nor penciled brow, but of meaning, of movement, of radiance. Then her soul sat on her lips, and language flowed from what source I cannot tell. Has a girl of fourteen a heart large enough, vigorous enough, to hold the swelling spring of pure, full, fervent eloquence? Such was the characteristic of a Helen's discord on that, to me, memorable evening. Her spirit seemed hastening to live within a very brief span, as much as many live during a protracted existence. They conversed of things I had never heard of, of nations and times past, of countries far away, of secrets of nature discovered or guessed at. They spoke of books, how many they had read, what stores of knowledge they possessed. Then they seemed so familiar with French names and French authors, But my amazement reached its climax when Miss Temple asked Helen if she sometimes snatched a moment to recall the Latin her father had taught her, and taking a book from a shelf, bade her read and construe a page of Virgil. And Helen obeyed. My organ of veneration expanding at every sounding line. She had scarcely finished ere the bell announced bedtime. No delay could be admitted. Miss Temple embraced us both, saying, as she drew us to her heart, "'God bless you, my children. "'Helen, she held a little longer than me. "'She let her go more reluctantly. "'It was Helen her eye followed to the door. "'It was for her she, a second time, breathed a sad sigh. "'For her she wiped a tear from her cheek.' On reaching the bedroom, we heard the voice of Miss Scratchard. She was examining drawers. She had just pulled out Helen Burns, and when we entered, Helen was greeted with a sharp reprimand and told that tomorrow she should have half a dozen of untidily folded articles pinned to her shoulder. My things were indeed in shameful disorder, murmured Helen to me in a low voice. I intended to have arranged them, but I forgot. Next morning, Miss Scratchard wrote in conspicuous characters on a piece of pasteboard the word slattern and bound it like a phylactery around Helen's large, mild, intelligent, and benign-looking forehead. She wore it till evening, patient, unresentful, regarding it as a deserved punishment. The moment Miss Scratchard withdrew after afternoon school— I ran to Helen, tore it off, and thrust it into the fire. The fury of which he was incapable had been burning in my soul all day, and tears hot and large had continually been scalding my cheek, for the spectacle of her sad resignation gave me an intolerable pain at the heart. About a week subsequently to the incidents above narrated, Miss Temple, who had written to Mr. Lloyd, received his answer. It appeared that what he said went to corroborate my account. Miss Temple, having assembled the whole school, announced that inquiry had been made into the charges alleged against Jane Eyre, and that she was most happy to be able to pronounce her completely cleared from every imputation. The teachers then shook hands with me and kissed me, and a murmur of pleasure ran through the ranks of my companions. Thus, relieved of a grievous load, I, from that hour, set to work afresh, resolved to pioneer my way through every difficulty. I toiled hard, and my success was proportionate to my efforts. My memory, not naturally tenacious, improved with practice. Exercise sharpened my wits. In a few weeks, I was promoted to a higher class, in less than two months I was allowed to commence French and drawing. I learned the first two tenses of the word être and sketched my first cottage, whose walls, by the by, outrivaled in slope those of the leaning tower of Pisa, on the same day. That night, on going to bed. I forgot to prepare in imagination the barmecide supper of hot roast potatoes or white bread and new milk with which I was wont to amuse my inward cravings. I feasted instead on the spectacle of ideal drawings, which I saw in the dark, all the work of my own hands, freely pencilled houses and trees, picturesque rocks and ruins, groups of cattle. Sweet paintings of butterflies hovering over unknown roses, of birds picking at ripe cherries, of wren's nests, enclosing pearl-like eggs wreathed about with young ivy sprays. I examined, too, in thought, the possibility of my ever being able to translate currently a certain little French story which Madame Pierrot had that day shown me. Nor was that problem solved to my satisfaction. Ere I fell, sweetly asleep. Well, has Solomon said, better is a dinner of herbs where love is, than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. I would not now have exchanged Lowood with all its privations for Gateshead and its daily luxuries. Chapter 9 but the privations, or rather the hardships of Lowood, lessened. Spring drew on. She was indeed already come. The frosts of winter had ceased. Its snows were melted, its cutting winds ameliorated. My wretched feet, flayed and swollen to lameness by the sharp air of January, began to heal and subside under the gentler breathings of April the nights and mornings, no longer by their Canadian temperature, froze the very blood in our veins, we could now endure the play hour passed in the garden. Sometimes on a sunny day it began even to be pleasant and genial, and a greenness grew over those brown beds, which, freshening daily, suggested the thought that hope traversed them at night, and left each morning brighter traces of her steps. Flowers peeped out amongst the leaves, snowdrops, crocuses, purple auriculas, and golden-eyed pansies. On Thursday afternoons, half-holidays, we now took walks and found still sweeter flowers opening by the wayside under the hedges. I discovered, too, that a great pleasure an enjoyment which the horizon only bounded, lay all outside the high and spike-guarded walls of our garden. This pleasure consisted in prospect of noble summits girdling a great hill hollow, rich in verdure and shadow, in a bright beck full of dark stones and sparkling eddies. How different had this scene looked when I viewed it laid out beneath the iron sky of winter, stiffened in frost, shrouded with snow, when mist as chill as death wandered to the impulse of east winds along those purple peaks, and rolled down ing and home till they blended with the frozen fog of the beck. The beck itself was then a torrent, turbid and curbless. It tore asunder the wood and sent a raving sound through the air, often thickened with wild rain or whirling sleet, and for the forest on its banks, that showed only ranks of skeletons. April advanced to May. A bright, serene May it was. Days of blue sky, placid sunshine, and soft western or southern gales filled up its duration. And now vegetation matured with vigor, Lowwood shook loose its tresses. It became all green, all flowery. Its great elm, ash, and oak skeletons were restored to majestic life. Woodland plants sprang up profusely in its recesses. Unnumbered varieties of moss filled its hollows, and it made a strange ground sunshine out of the wealth of its wild primrose plants. I have seen their pale gold gleam in overshadowed spots like scatterings of the sweetest luster. All this I enjoyed often and fully, free, unwatched, and almost alone, for this unwanted liberty and pleasure there was a cause, to which it now becomes my task to advert. Have I not described a pleasant sight for a dwelling, when I speak of it as bosomed in hill and wood, and rising from the verge of a stream? Assuredly pleasant enough, but whether healthy or not is another question. That forest dell, where Lowood lay, was the cradle of fog and fog-bred pestilence, which, quickening with the quickening spring, crept into the orphan asylum, breathed typhus through its crowded schoolroom and dormitory, and, ere May arrived, transformed the seminary into a hospital. Semi-starvation and neglected colds had predisposed most of the pupils to receive infection. Forty-five out of the eighty girls lay ill at one time. Classes were broken up, rules relaxed. The few who continued well were allowed almost unlimited license because the medical attendant insisted on the necessity of frequent exercise to keep them in health and had it been otherwise, no one had leisure to watch or restrain them. Miss Temple's whole attention was absorbed by the patients. She lived in the sick room, never quitting it except to snatch a few hours' rest at night. The teachers were fully occupied with packing up and making other necessary preparations for the departure of those girls who were fortunate enough to have friends and relations able and willing to remove them from the seat of the contagion many, already smitten, went home only to die. Some died at the school, and were buried quietly and quickly, the nature of the malady forbidding delay. While disease had thus become an inhabitant of Lowood, and death its frequent visitor— while there was gloom and fear within its walls, while its rooms and passages steamed with hospital smells, the drug and the pastille striving vainly to overcome the effluvia of mortality, that bright May shone unclouded over the bold hills and beautiful woodland out of doors. Its garden, too, glowed with flowers, hollyhocks had sprung up tall as trees, lilies had opened, tulips and roses were in bloom, the borders of the little beds were gay with pink thrift and crimson double daisies, the sweet briars gave out morning and evening their scent of spice and apples, and these fragrant treasures were all useless for most of the inmates of Lowood. "'except to furnish now within a handful of herbs and blossoms to put in a coffin. "'But I, and the rest who continued well, enjoyed fully the beauties of the scene and season. "'They let us ramble in the wood, like gypsies from morning till night. "'We did what we liked, went where we liked. "'We lived better, too. "'Mr. Brocklehurst and his family never came near Lowood now.' Household matters were not scrutinized into. The cross housekeeper was gone, driven away by the fear of infection. Her successor, who had been matron at the Lowton dispensary, unused to the ways of her new abode, provided with comparative liberality. Besides, there were fewer to feed. The sick could eat little. Our breakfast basins were better filled when there was no time to prepare a regular dinner which often happened. She would give us a large piece of cold pie or a thick slice of bread and cheese, and this we carried away with us to the wood, where we each chose the spot we liked best and dined sumptuously. My favorite seat was a smooth and broad stone, rising white and dry from the very middle of the beck and only to be got at by wading through the water, a feat I accomplished barefoot The stone was just broad enough to accommodate, comfortably, another girl and me. At that time, my chosen comrade, one Mary Ann Wilson, a shrewd, observant personage whose society I took pleasure in, partly because she was witty and original, and partly because she had a manner which set me at my ease. Some years older than I, she knew more of the world and could tell me many things I liked to hear— with her, my curiosity found gratification. To my faults, also, she gave ample indulgence, never imposing curb or rein on anything I said. She had a turn for narrative, for analysis. She liked to inform, I to question. So we got on swimmingly together, deriving much entertainment, if not much improvement, from our mutual intercourse. And where, meantime was Helen Burns. Why did I not spend these sweet days of liberty with her? Had I forgotten her? Or was I so worthless as to have grown tired of her pure society? Surely the Mary Ann Wilson I have mentioned was inferior to my first acquaintance. She could only tell me amusing stories and reciprocate any racy and pungent gossip I chose to indulge in. Well, if I have spoken truth of Helen she was qualified to give those who enjoyed the privilege of her converse a taste of far higher things. True, reader, and I knew and felt this, and though I am a defective being, with many faults and few redeeming points, yet I never tired of Helen Burns, nor ever ceased to cherish for her a sentiment of attachment, a strong, tender, and respectful as any that ever animated my heart. How could it be otherwise, when Helen, at all times and under all circumstances, evinced for me a quiet and faithful friendship, which ill-humor never soured, nor irritation never troubled? But Helen was ill at present. For some weeks she had been removed from my sight, to I knew not what room upstairs— She was not, I was told, in the hospital portion of the house with the fever patients, for her complaint was consumption, not typhus, and by consumption I, in my ignorance, understood something mild, which time and care would be sure to alleviate. I was confirmed in this idea by the fact of her once or twice coming downstairs on very warm sunny afternoons and being taken by Miss Temple into the garden, but on these occasions I was not allowed to go and speak to her. I only saw her from the schoolroom window, and then not distinctly, for she was much wrapped up, and sat at a distance under the veranda. One evening, in the beginning of June, I had stayed out very late with Mary Ann in the wood. We had, as usual, separated ourselves from the others, and had wandered far, "'so far that we lost our way "'and had to ask it at a lonely cottage "'where a man and woman lived "'who looked after a swerd of half-wild swine "'that fed on the mast in the wood. "'When we got back, it was after moonrise. "'A pony, which we knew to be the surgeons, "'was standing at the garden door. "'Mary Anne remarked that she supposed "'someone must be very ill, "'as Mr. Bates had been sent for "'at that time of the evening.' She went into the house. I stayed behind a few minutes to plant in my garden a handful of roots I had dug up in the forest and which I feared would wither if I left them till the morning. This done, I lingered yet a little longer. The flowers smelt so sweet as the dew fell. It was such a pleasant evening, so so serene, so warm. The still glowing west promised so fairly another fine day on the morrow. The moon rose with such majesty in the grave east. I was noting these things and enjoying them as a child might when it entered my mind as it had never done before. How sad to be lying now on a sick bed, and to be in danger of dying. This world is pleasant. It would be dreary to be cold from it and to have to go who knows where. And then my mind made its first earnest effort to comprehend what had been infused into it concerning heaven and hell. And for the first time it recoiled, baffled, and for the first time, glancing behind on each side and before it, it saw all round an unfathomed gulf. It felt the one point where it stood, the present. All the rest was formless cloud and vacant depth." and it shuddered at the thought of tottering and plunging amid that chaos. While pondering this new idea, I heard the front door open. Mr. Bates came out, and with him was a nurse. After she had seen him mount his horse and depart, she was about to close the door, but I ran up to her. "'How is Helen Burns?' "'Very poorly,' was the answer. "'Is it her Mr. Bates has been to see?' "'Yes.' and what does he say about her? He says she'll not be here long. This phrase, uttered in my hearing yesterday, would have only conveyed the notion that she was about to be removed to Northumberland, to her own home. I should not have suspected that it meant she was dying, but I knew instantly now. It opened clear on my comprehension "'that Helen Burns was numbering her last days in this world, "'and that she was going to be taken to the region of spirits, "'if such region there were. "'I experienced a shock of horror, "'then a strong thrill of grief, "'then a desire, a necessity to see her, "'and I asked in what room she lay. "'She is in Miss Temple's room,' said the nurse. "'May I go up and speak to her? "'Oh, no, no, child, it is not likely.' And now it is time for you to come in. You'll catch the fever if you stop out when the dew is falling. The nurse closed the front door. I went in by the side entrance, which led to the schoolroom. I was just in time. It was nine o'clock, and Miss Miller was calling the pupils to go to bed. It might be two hours later, probably near eleven, when I not having been able to fall asleep, and deeming from the perfect silence of the dormitory that my companions were all wrapped in profound repose, rose softly, put on my frock over my nightdress, and without shoes, crept from the apartment and set off in quest of Miss Temple's room. It was quite at the other end of the house, but I knew my way— and the light of the unclouded summer moon entering here and there at passage windows enabled me to find it without difficulty. An odor of camphor and burnt vinegar warned me when I came near the fever room, and I passed its door quickly, fearful lest the nurse who sat up all night should hear me. I dreaded being discovered and sent back, for I must see Helen. I must embrace her before she died." I must give her one last kiss, exchange with her one last word. Having descended a staircase, traversed a portion of the house below, and succeeded in opening and shutting without noise, two doors, I reached another flight of steps. These I mounted, and then just opposite to me was Miss Temple's room. A light shone through the keyhole and from under the door. A profound stillness pervaded the vicinity. Coming near, I found the door slightly ajar, probably to emit some fresh air into the close abode of sickness. Indisposed to hesitate and full of impatient impulses, soul and senses quivering with keen throes, I put it back and looked in. My eyes sought Helen and feared to find death close by Miss Temple's bed, and half covered with its white curtains, there stood a little crib. I saw the outline of a form under the clothes, but the face was hid by the hangings. The nurse I had spoken to in the garden sat in an easy chair asleep, an unsnuffed candle burnt dimly on the table. Miss Temple was not to be seen, "'I knew afterwards that she had been called "'to a delirious patient in the fever room. "'I advanced, then paused by the crib side. "'My hand was on the curtain, "'but I preferred speaking before I withdrew it. "'I still recoiled at the dread of seeing a corpse. "'Helen!' I whispered softly. "'Are you awake?' "'She stirred herself, put back the curtain.' and I saw her face, pale, wasted, but quite composed. She looked so little changed that my fear was instantly dissipated. Can it be you, Jane? she asked in her own gentle voice. Oh, I thought, she is not going to die. They are mistaken. She could not speak and look so calmly if she were. I got onto her crib and kissed her. Her forehead was cold and her cheek both cold and thin and so were her hand and wrist but she smiled as of old. Why are you come here, Jane? It is past eleven o'clock. I heard it strike some minutes since. I came to see you, Helen. I heard you were very ill and I could not sleep till I'd spoken to you. You came to bid me goodbye, then. You're just in time, probably. Are you going somewhere, Helen? Are you going home? Yes. To my long home. My last home. No, no, Helen. I stopped, distressed. While I tried to devour my tears, a fit of coughing seized Helen. It did not, however, wake the nurse. When it was over, she lay some minutes exhausted. Then she whispered, Jane, your little feet are bare. Lie down and cover yourself with my quilt. I did so. She put her arm over me, and I nestled close to her. After a long silence, she resumed, still whispering, I am very happy, Jane, and when you hear, that I am dead. You must be sure and not grieve. There is nothing to grieve about. We all must die one day, and the illness which is removing me is not painful. It is gentle and gradual. My mind is at rest. I leave no one to regret me much. I have only a father, and he is lately married, and will not miss me. By dying young, I shall escape great sufferings. I had not qualities or talents to make my way very well in the world. I should have been continually at fault. But where are you going to, Helen? Can you see? Do you know? I believe. I have faith. I am going to God. Where is God? What is God? My Maker and yours, who will never destroy what He created. I rely implicitly on His power and confide wholly in His goodness. I count the hours till that eventful one arrives which shall restore me to Him, reveal Him to me. You are sure then, Helen, that there is such a place as heaven and that our souls can get to it when we die. I am sure there is a future state. I believe God is good. I can resign my immortal part to him without any misgiving. God is my father. God is my friend. I love him. I believe he loves me. And shall I see you again, Helen, when I die? You will come to the same region of happiness, be received by the same mighty universal parent, no doubt, dear Jane. Again I questioned, but this time only in thought. Where is that region? Does it exist? And I clasped my arms closer round Helen. She seemed dearer to me than ever. I felt as if I could not let her go. I lay with my face hidden on her neck. Presently, she said, in the sweetest tone, How comfortable I am. That last bit of coughing has tired me a little. I feel as if I could sleep, but don't leave me, Jane. I'd like to have you near me. I'll stay with you, dear Helen. No one shall take me away. Are are you warm, darling? Yes. Good night, Jane. Good night, Helen. She kissed me, and I her, and we both soon slumbered. When I awoke it was day. An unusual movement roused me. I looked up. I was in somebody's arms. The nurse held me. She was carrying me through the passage back to the dormitory. I was not reprimanded for leaving my bed. People had something else to think about. No explanation was afforded then to my many questions, but a day or two afterwards I learned that Miss Temple, and returning to her own room at dawn, had found me laid in the little crib, my face against Helen Burns' shoulder. My arm round her neck. I was asleep, and Helen was dead. Her grave is in Brocklebridge Churchyard. For fifteen years after her death, it was only covered by a grassy mound. But now, a grey marble tablet marks the spot, inscribed with her name and the word Resurgam. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marilyn Lightstone Reads Jane Eyre. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock and Paul Thomas. Executive producer, Moses Zneimer. You can help us by recommending this podcast to your friends and rating it in the iTunes and Android podcast stores. We invite you to enjoy a variety of other podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network.